You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. Cool. So I can uh, probably get started with a little intro here I have for you. <clears throat> yeah, sounds good. Okay. Today we're here with Khalid, one of my good buddies from the Subliminal Jihad podcast. I don't know if he would call himself an academic expert, but I would. Um, I am definitely an academic expert in certain things, um, I guess. I mean, I don't really like to toot my own horn, and being an academic expert usually means like in a very narrow subject mm-hmm. area. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah. That's like one of the few perks of being in academia, I guess, is being able to like consider yourself an expert in something, for what it's worth. But I guess really expertise like is just realizing how little you actually know yeah one thing i really like about what your guys's show does is like i really like the level of research that you bring to the table like you find some pretty far out there documents and i think that's really cool yeah uh, i think dimitri and i are both like pretty uh attuned to that yeah but it's definitely a reflex that i have to be like yeah let me look like deep into this you know uh let me see how far i can go yeah and it's especially fun with kind of the more out there subjects like it's crazy like the interesting things you can find doing some of the you know like the cryptid stuff that we've gone into and things like that uh you know, but of course, yeah, the more uh, down to earth subjects we've also uh, done a lot of heavy lifting on. So, yeah, but uh, yeah, it's time consuming. But other than that, you know, it's uh, it's rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that it, I would probably say you're about as much of an expert on cryptozoology as like anyone right (laughs) (laughs) um i don't i guess yeah can you really be an expert in cryptozoology i don't know yeah good uh yeah (laughs) yeah so oh man so if you've listened to subliminal jihad dear listeners you know that this guy can research so i'm very excited to have Khalid with us today how are you doing good yeah and we're talking like right now about something that like kind of brushes up against like my actual life outside of podcasting so like my actual academic work uh you know again like it's so narrow uh that like it's still like tangential even though it's an extremely niche subject but it's more proximate than a lot of the stuff that i do podcast about so yeah we're really in my wheelhouse uh, more than usual here yeah, I was going to ask, because I think you've mentioned it on your show, but how much of this does overlap with like what your actual academic uh, niche is? A fair amount. Um, and like, you know, right now I'm working on certain things and uh, I would maybe like to do work more specifically on the on Islamic uh, occultism down the line. Uh, mm-hmm. My work now is more focused on... Uh, Sufism and uh, esotericism and, you know, outside of the occult. But those worlds are, like, very adjacent. And a lot of the people, like uh, Hussein Vyas Kashafi, for instance, uh, he's someone who, like, wrote on the occult and was also, like, you know, very much involved in Naqshbandi, Sufi order uh, in Tamurid Harat in the early modern period. So that's just one example. Uh, There's a lot of crossover between those worlds. Like, you know, yeah the materials that I work with are more like sort of Sufi manuals uh, or hagiographies and things like that. But um, I do, uh, I am super interested in 
the more occult materials and uh, I, I do look at some of that stuff and I'd like to get more deeply into it uh, later on. So I have a fair amount of knowledge of it, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of what the materials that I, that I generally work with are. Yeah, the thing that I uh, brought Khaled on to talk about was I wanted to try to explore some of the topics uh, like different things about like witchcraft, magic, jinn, like different, like the Islamic conceptions of these things. And, you know, you're the perfect guy for that. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely, uh, I think so. Well, you know, there's many people who uh, could expand mm -hmm. on these topics, but in this like little universe, yeah, uh, maybe. Um, but yeah. Could I ask you a question? Um, are, so is your name... Did you take that name after uh, the companion of Muhammad, peace be upon him? Uh, you mean uh, Khalid ibn al-Walid? Uh, mm -hmm. Not necessarily, uh, but, you know, I'm not ashamed of that. Although, like, you know, I've learned after taking the name Khalid that, like, some people, uh, like Shia, for instance, certain Shia, like, really hate Khalid ibn al-Walid. You know, he's, like, one of those companions who uh, mm -hmm. has a bad reputation vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, like, the Isle Bight uh, in some cases. So, uh, Isle Bight, but the yeah it's uh so you know i'm not like aligned with him on that front but you know i just i i thought he was pretty cool like at first but now maybe he has like kind of a complex legacy uh in my mind uh yeah that makes sense yeah it's an interesting figure you know because he is like a vociferous opponent of islam who then became like a very fierce warrior for islam but he didn't really quite shed some of the, uh, you know, uh, mushrik, uh, uh, kind of, uh, tenor, uh, in terms of his, his actions, uh, that sort of ferocity of the, the Arab pagan, uh, pride maybe, uh, and the sort of, uh, violent disposition. So maybe, you know, uh, that's something yeah. I would say of him. Yeah. But he's an interesting that, historical personage. That makes sense. Very interesting. So where, where I grew up, there was a disproportionately high amount of Muslims compared to, I guess you could say the rest of the country. And I always thought it was really cool. Like I grew up Mormon and through school, you know, me and the Muslim kids didn't necessarily, we weren't the favorites of like the Baptists or, you know, take your pick. So I always got along with the Muslim kids quite a bit and we would always talk about different things and then yeah as, I remember you mentioning this in the discord because I feel like Islam and Mormonism are like kind of subtly on a wavelength because we both have like sort of post Jesus prophets maybe the you know the polygamy connection maybe and I think that yeah part of it does have to do with kind of the sneering of other groups and like the stereotypes about both kind of feed off of each other I feel like maybe the sort of stereotypes about Mormons feed on sort of anxieties and stereotypes around Muslims, like in American culture, you know, like they would sort of say like, oh, Joseph Smith, he's like the Muhammad, you know, of the Southwest or something, you know? So yeah, I feel yeah. like there is like a little bit of crossover there in terms of, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of natural alliance uh, in some ways. Uh, and then sort of like external signifiers of like, I guess you could say, piousness or devotion uh, that yeah, like Mormons don't drink right yeah so that's a big mm -hmm. thing too 
Although I don't know if Baptists really drink so much, or at least they're supposed to kind of like be more not to I don't know. the same level, I guess. But yeah, mm-hmm. I was uh, yeah. at one of my at one of my jobs. I was pretty close to a nice Pakistani lady because neither of us drank, and so we were both a little bit on the outside because we wouldn't go mm-hmm. to the drinking functions. So yeah right no it's very alienating if you don't sip the koof juice but uh this is uh we're strangers in this world yeah i heard i read something about how like uh you know in utah where there's like a high concentration of mormons like dentists just like make a killing because since uh mormons can't like uh drink or use all these other substances they like eat like a lot of sugary candy and mm-hmm. I admit, like, I'm like that, you know, like, I love, like, gummy bears, like, sweet tarts, like, that's, like, you know, what our Arizona iced teas, things like that, you know. Uh, the yeah, inordinate amount of Definitely so- a soda. vice. Yeah, exactly. Definitely a vice, but, you know, uh, it is what it is. You could almost maybe track, like, an ambient level of some type of drug usage, whether it's just a different form or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, I think it does maybe get displaced. Uh, I mean, at least that was what what I read was alleging. So maybe not. Maybe it's all like a. No, I can know. I can confirm for sure there are more dentists than normal in Utah. <laughs> yeah, I know you're very on the dentist beat, so I trust your your yeah. insight on that. Yeah. No, but so when I would hang out with this Pakistani lady, we would just talk about different stuff, and she kept telling me all of these like really interesting like things about jinn and witchcraft and this was like before i found out about subliminal jihad mm-hmm. <clears throat> so i was like oh man this is fascinating and then your show comes out and i'm just like oh i i was prepared for this <laughs> nice yeah um no i feel like some people are kind of thrown by like some of the re- like the i think that jinn is something that we talk about often uh especially when we deal with like paranormal subjects that some people are like thrown by uh, but I do feel that, uh, Jin is a very good, like, comprehensive approach to a lot of those subjects, and once you can, like, reckon with the, uh, concept of Jin, I think a lot of things, uh, I think that Jin is really something that is a key kind of missing piece in a lot of people's, uh, cosmological orientation. Uh, so yeah, it's... I, w- I wanted to ask you about that because... I think you're absolutely right. Like, if you were to say, like, demon, that's too, like, loaded with, like, maybe in English at least, like, yeah. loaded with different things. But, like, so in, what is jinn, basically? Well, that's a, a important, that I feel like is an important point because, like, I think something that people kind of may perceive, and this is definitely not, like, this is definitely true due in part to, like, the way that, uh, Muslims or others, you know, use jinn. Like when we talk about like jinn, like are haunting or are telling a jinn story, it's usually has like an atmosphere of menace to it. But you know, the same mm-hmm. way that there's like kindly ghost stories, there's also good jinn. Like jinn aren't demons because even though there are malevolent jinn, not all jinn are malevolent. Jinn are basically like humans in terms of like you know their uh, moral orientation or like uh, in terms of like mm-hmm. good versus evil. Uh, they have basically the best way to explain what a jinn is, which probably won't demystify the subject too much for people, but I think it's a good place <laughs> to start, is that like as humans are to earth, jinn are to fire. Uh, you know, like human beings are made out of earth and, you know, water. Like you're, we are mostly water, but we're, you know, so is earth. Uh, 
it contains a lot of water. We're made out of clay, you know, Adam and Eve, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and jinn are beings of, of smokeless fire. Uh, so where our constitution is earth, theirs is fire. So based on that allegory, you can basically understand like uh, jinn in relation to human beings. They're like us, but their fundamental constitution is based on this different element, which you can understand kind of allegorically. You know, you don't have to think of it in terms of like, oh, you know, God took a bunch of clay and like pounded it together and made like a man. Like we don't really know like what aspect of this is allegorical or yeah. esoteric. But, uh, you know, basically I think that the comparison or the the relativity between humans and jinn based on that principle does hold up that as human beings are to earth whatever that relationship is jinn are to fire um and yes yeah, so they have kind of like a liminal nature you know they're uh very inconstant their existence is in some way uh ephemeral and they, you know, uh, I think that's something like where you see something out of the corner of your eye and it's not quite there. Or if you look away for a second, it's gone. That's a very old uh, feature or characteristic of Jin that people talk about, like in dusty old papyruses, like going back, you know, way, way, you know, like yeah. the things people will say, like on Reddit now about like Bigfoot or a shadow person or a ghost, like all that stuff has been said about Jin for centuries like all the characteristics of like your sort of paranormal epiphany or experience those are like stereotypical characteristics of jinn encounters that you can find in like texts from literally centuries ago like to the letter it's really truly amazing like the idea that you can trap a jinn in the cone of your eyesight but the moment you look away it will flicker off uh mm. you know that that type of thing it's it's been there forever or the idea that which you see in Christian texts, like relating to, they talk about demons, you know, but uh, Muslim uh, mystics, uh, to use one of my least favorite words, but uh, Muslim ascetics, you know, let's say, uh, when they're doing their sort of meditations uh, and uh, they'll experience like a, a visitation of something, you know, like a, that will try to uh, distract them. You know, Christians talk about similar phenomena uh, and those, you know, that's something that happens today, I think, when, you know, people say these entities and things like that. You know, there's one amazing description from a book called Reshahet Ein Al-Hayat, or uh, Droplets from the Source of Life, you know, kind of with a connotation of, like, sweat drops or dew drops from the Source of Life. And it's a story about, you know, a guy who is meditating, a Sufi, and he sees a demon that looks, like, exactly like Slender Man. It's really, like, uh, amazing. Oh, it seems like... Yeah, uh, I'll see if I can I can dig it up, uh, but it might take me a second. But yeah, I'll uh, if I can find it, I will I will share. But yeah, um, so that's yeah, sweet. So, <laughs> yeah, this is something that uh, is yeah uh, you know a very uh, it, it, there's a there's a huge like resonance between the way that people describe all kinds of paranormal experiences now ranging from encounters with aliens, alien abduction, uh, you know, yeah. encounters with cryptids, encounters with ghosts. But uh, Jin is like a very uh, comprehensive and uh, sort of logical explanation for all these things, that we share our world with a class of beings that are similar to humans, that don't necessarily have a fundamentally bad or a fundamentally good disposition, but are kind of a little bit <laughs> out of phase uh because they're you know uh they are a different constitution than us and and no. uh, you know most animals 
Let me let me ask you a question then. So I think that Jin is a very useful descriptor, just like you said, for all those reasons. Let me ask you, what are Jin not? Because like I'm getting the impression that Jin are not ghosts, like the you know the spirits of people who died, for instance. No, like would not. you? The Jin are not the spirits of people who died. Uh, they like, but they may be mistaken for the spirits of people who died. Certainly, or even say they mean... are, maybe. Yes, exactly. They may represent themselves as the spirits of people who died. They may represent themselves as any number of things. Uh, hmm. They, you know, because, yeah, by virtue of, like, their inconstant nature, you know, they're, they've always been associated with, like, being tricky and having mm-hmm. an element of, of deception uh, in their sort of uh, constitution or their personalities. So, no, they're not spirits. That doesn't mean that people... Uh, that are dead can't maybe appear to you like that is also something that is mm. a common uh, account that people give now i'm not maybe they were wrong maybe they were deceived by jinn in some way you know one of the most famous things something that i bring up just to talk about it, as an example uh, to various things you know the different sort of epistemological grounding of a lot of uh, islamic intellectual history is like the idea that if you see the prophet in a dream you know that's actually the prophet appearing to you uh, which really is a big difference from the ontological status given to dreams in like normal contemporary sort of uh, scientific yeah. rationalist discourse, and also speaks to uh, the fact that if you see were to see somebody else in a dream, you can't really be sure that Satan isn't impersonating that person, uh, or there's always like a little bit of a contingency there. You have to be careful. You know, usually if you see like a saint or something. People take that at face value or at least, you know, other uh, Sufis do where they, for whatever reason, seek some kind of assurance or provide some kind of uh, proof like of a, the legitimacy like a, of their experience. But, like it's like yeah. a, maybe a safer when it's a saint, maybe. Yeah, that they have some kind of protection. Uh, but usually, you know, that possibility is something that people are very conscious of. And there's always the anxiety around uh, the legitimacy of that type of uh, epiphany or uh, a manifestation. Um, that's that's fascinating because I recall, and I, again, I've I've issued so many disclaimers on my show before. Like I'm not proselyting for Mormonism here, nor I'm a you know, nor would I say that I'm proselyting for Islam, right? But like mm-hmm. in Mormonism, I think it was Joseph Smith actually gave rules for if you encounter like a spirit, how to know if it's like. <laughs> like a good or a bad spirit which is mm-hmm. just like seems somewhat you know similar to that yeah uh okay i found this story this is an interesting little uh gen story uh that mm-hmm. i like uh and the description of the uh creature here is uh very uh you know uh, uh compelling i think so uh the person says uh, i'm not sure who it is they just uh, flipped here to um you know a random page based on word search but so early in my spiritual career i was sitting in the congregational mosque below the official enclosure and facing the qibla i was engaged in the practice of remembrance uh, that's the you know just like kind of repeating usually like la la hey la la you know just uh, over and over kind of like a, uh, people use it as like a form of meditation or uh, contemplation mm-hmm. so suddenly an odd figure appeared in front of me It was a strange creature in the shape of a human being, dark in color, extremely thin, and tall in stature. It was so tall that its head seemed about to touch the ceiling of the official enclosure. Its head was tiny, no bigger than an Indian walnut. 
Its mouth was wide open and its teeth were as white as milk. This is like a creepypasta, right? Its no. neck was as slender as a rope and very long. Oh. Wearing a smile, it started coming towards me. It was making various peculiar movements, sometimes bending over and sometimes straightening up. I said to myself, this is probably what they call an ogre or demon. This is the translation. So what he probably said was afrit or ifrit, which is uh, a word that, you know, kind of means like evil jinn or like a very powerful evil jinn. So uh, I felt sure it intended to distract me from the practice of remembrance and detach me from the spiritual link of the glorious saints. I tried myself more firmly to the spiritual path and pressed on with my work more energetically. The ogre went through all sorts of motions in order to distract me, but to no avail. It finally loomed above me, but I still ignored it and pressed on with my work. I saw it was not it saw I was not abandoning my work, so it jumped on my shoulders and wrapped its feet around my waist like a rope. No. Even in that condition, I showed no sign of dismay. Before long, the ogre unwound its feet from my waist, rose high into the air like a puff of smoke, and vanished from sight. Since then, I have never seen anything resembling that. Oh no. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, you know, and that is literally from the 15th century. So, uh, you know, you could see how, like, similar these stories are to, like, the creepypasta of today uh, or, you know, to genuine experience that people have with the paranormal. Um, so so yeah, I, I let me let me let me ask you, and I know that this will sound absurd, you know, taken out of context, right? But, like, do you think that <laughs> do you think that people like the the creator of slender man right it's probably some online artist or whatever but like do you think that they like saw slender man and then like drew it or what like what do you think man uh i think that their slender man is definitely not like something that is new there is like you mm. know people say like a oh, slender man was made up on this website that's true in terms of like the name slender man and certain characteristics of slender man but as you can see like that fits a description of slender fan you know like yeah. and there i remember there was a story called i want to say it was called ziggy that was published in a horror uh anthology a while ago uh like back in the 80s or 90s or something and it's like you know about a stick figure that kind of comes to life and haunts like a, a school teacher like one of her students and you know it also kind of has those characteristics of being like very you know kind of jangly and you know uh even the aspect of like kind of preying upon children in particular um or having this sort yeah. of uh quality of like being sort of glimpsed into the corner of your eye and things like that or you know kind of uh, a caught in the background of a photograph where it's originally not noticed something like that but uh so i think that yeah like slender man is a type um so mm. I don't know if that, like, what that person's experience was. Maybe, like, in the artistic act, you know, uh, somehow, like, this entity or class, uh, uh, one example from a class of entities manifested itself to him and, and kind of imprinted itself on our mimetic consciousness in some way. But it's definitely not, like, that he made up Slender Man from whole cloth. Or if he did so, like, in some way, he at least unconsciously was, as a matter of fact participating in like a long tradition of descriptions of uh you know scary spooks and oogie boogies like that uh yeah. you know with sim very similar characteristics you know now let me ask you then so if jinn are like the umbrella term well let me ask you one more thing about jinn so are they always incorporeal or is there like a liminal like sometimes there's like a physicality or what's the yeah i think that they can i mean 
yeah, like, the, again, let's go back to the fire example, right? Like, fire is incorporable, but it can have, or, you know, it's at least in some way intangible. You know, you can't, like, pick up mm -hmm. a ball of fire in your hand unless, you know, you're, like, one of the Marvels uh, or something, <laughs> you know, uh, or whatever, you know, the you know what they're called. Uh, and uh, so you can't do that, but, you know, obviously fire can affect you. Fire can touch you. You know, concentrated flame can do all sorts of things, you know? It can even allegedly uh, bring down uh, a steel skyscraper, you know, uh, if left <laughs> uncontrolled. So uh, definitely, yeah, Jin can affect the material world. Or, you know, they can, you know, I think that these things, and I think that's something that might be a good thing to throw out for some who might, like, be skeptical of, like, the paranormal in general, is that I think that it something that's baked into any kind of discourse about jinn especially at like a sophisticated level like you see in some of these hagiographies or in uh, sufi texts or any like uh, occult meditations on the nature of jinn uh there's definitely an awareness that they interact with and this basically goes into the whole ontology of uh the whole like you know uh ontology which is basically broadly based on ibn al-arabi's uh ontology but has many different permutations but basically you know we kind of see reality as itself being kind of uh like a, a projection or or uh, screenal in some way you know that the world mm. of appearance is not the same as like the reality like reality is allah you know that's like another name for god you know and the whole like uh object of for instance sufi practice is to uh get in touch with the real and to experience the real because this world you know the dunya is not you know real generally it had mm -hmm. contains signs and impressions from god and you know certain things that happen certain serendipitous or, or uh, uh synchronicitous events you know, can be interpreted as signs from from God because everything that happens, you know, happens by by God's by God's will. And uh, so, in that context, you know, the manifestation, the way that these things happen, that is, it's fundamentally interacting with. So when you're saying like, oh, you know, it's all in somebody's head, like, you know, this the ontology that a lot of this discourse is based in sees basically everything as being all in our heads. You know, like, so to say that yeah. there's no real ontological distinction between something that's real and or something that's part of the world and something that's like all in your head, because the only thing that is real is Allah, God. And so to say like, oh, you know, jinn aren't real, like, well, you know, humans aren't real. You're not real. I isn't real. Only Allah is real. So that distinction, like that sort of like uh, splitting hairs between like supernatural versus natural or like all in your head versus yeah. not doesn't really apply to like that uh, discourse around Jin. Let me let me ask you just quick question. Have you watched uh, Twin Peaks? I have. I watched the original. Yes. Gotcha. So I always thought it was really funny as I like got more and more on the magical wavelength that there are people who will basically like watch Twin Peaks like deeply read about it and then basically be like David Lynch's worldview is correct there are these spirits and other entities that exist <laughs> and it's like a really roundabout way to get to what was basically already either you know a Judaic or Christian or Islamic conception of the natural world right yeah and that, like i don't necessarily like tr you know trust that like when people like are accessing this things like mediated by mm -hmm. david lynch that like kind of susses me out like uh i mean i think like he is like a tibetan buddhist right like um 
or something like some version of that oh no he's the tm he's in the t like yes right mm -hmm. that's Correct. really sus because like steve and greer like they're definitely like communing with Jin that are like impersonating light beings you know uh well and, yeah i know, mean that's the thing it's like he he like is into this idiosyncratic version that perhaps is maybe too sympathetic to some of these i guess you could say yeah Jin. or doesn't have yeah, it doesn't have a sense of, like, protection or uh, awareness, like, about it. Like, in fact, you know, like, all this stuff always comes, and really, this is true, you know, I think Dimitri and I have gone on at length about this on the show, because, like, I think that, you know, we live in a very, uh, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm always at pains to not sound like a reactionary crank, like, or like a Jordan <laughs> Peterson type person, like, saying this stuff, but, like, we live, you know, in a liberal society, like, in a very permissive culture that's basically, you know, like, Basically, and it harm none, do what thou wilt is like, you know, a, a libertarian principle that basically like obtains as like something that is uh, upheld in, in American society, you know? So like the mm -hmm. idea of being like, oh, you know, like saying like, I kind of disprove of you, like, you know, or kind of like, I don't feel super great about you, like, you know, worshiping Baphomet or something, you know, or like, I <laughs> like that, that like is kind of seen as being like censorious or like prudish in some way, you know, it's odd because saying the same thing about like someone being Christian is almost in certain sectors more accepted, but, uh, you mm -hmm. know, it, it, uh, yeah, I think that, like, uh, hold on, I, I lost my train of thought here. Oh, yeah, I'm uh, talking about how, like, uh, the sort of uh, understanding of what these entities are and, like, one's framework for engaging with them. But, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, we've gone to this where, you know, it seems like uh, we're being in somehow censorious or prudish when we say, like, you know, be careful, like, doing this stuff or, you know, we're kind of skeptical of, like, the sort of witch talk thing or people saying, like, yeah, just go to the crossroads and, like, you know, burn some incense and, like, summon Lucifer. Like, but really, if you read, mm -hmm. like, you know, the t works of black magicians, like, you know, Crowley, uh, someone who's, like, you know, a uh, very uh, accomplished black magician, Probably whether people think that they're like Thelemites or like that they're influenced by Crowley or not, like most of the occult tradition really is like in a Crowleyan mold since the, you know, the 20th century when he was active, the early 20th century. Yeah, and um, at a minimum, everyone's just either in that mold or reacting against it, which is still, you know, yes, absolutely. In informed by... Mm -hmm. Yeah, the still like the most prominent occultists from what I see, you know, like from looking at like the social media world of the occult, the most sort of prominent are still Thelemites and the, the, the most influential text is still the Book of the Law. So but anyway, my point is that Crowley would say, you know, that these things can be very dangerous that they were a danger to him at various points because he failed to take suitable precautions, mm -hmm. that you need, like, a lot of support, that you need to understand what you're getting into. He even warned against, like, you know, uh, the careless use of Ouija boards, which sounds like a very, mm -hmm. you know, like, Southern Baptist, like, superstitious, like, you know, ha-ha thing. But he said the same. So insofar as... Yeah, I, insofar as uh, you, you know, believe in, in black magic, if you feel that it's it's prudish or, or censorious for uh you know me to say like be careful in meddling with these things you know that's what the authorities of that tradition said as well um and you know if people just simply don't believe in and don't think it's dangerous then i mean whatever it doesn't hurt anybody uh for me to say be careful you know uh yeah. if you believe that it, there's no uh you know force to it but there i i would say that there certainly is um 
But yes, and of course, you know, if you read Sufi materials, there's similar things even about participating in Sufism because it's all about, you know, mm. kind of trying to transcend the self and get to the point of self-annihilation. There's people like uh, Mansur al-Halaj, you know, who's famously martyred uh, or executed, you know, for saying on al-Haq, you know, uh, I am the truth, right? Which uh, al-Haq, like I said, reality is understood to be like an, the identity of God. You know, reality is God. So to say I am the real, that's kind of saying I am God, which like in orthodox terms, very sacrilegious. But the excuse they make for him is that he had actually achieved like such a state of ecstasy and transcendence that like that wasn't even like really coming from him. He wasn't in control of his words. Uh, and so that like he was someone who achieved that rarefied state. But there's mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, there's a saying that's like our work is poisoned on the point of a sword, you know, on one side is, you know, paradise and on the other side is hellfire because that's how delicate this advanced kind of mystical work is. And if someone, you know, were to pretend to that state and to assume that, uh, statement of like I am the truth without achieving the level that Ahalaj had achieved, then that would be like the absolute worst and most reprobate and despicable thing. Uh, so whereas on one hand it's extremely exalted, you know, there's one other thing I remember where uh, there's kind of a debate or a controversy around Sama, which is uh, listening to music. You know, uh, these Muslims hate listening to music, but. What a lot of this controversy around music has to do with actually is like kind of the use of music for like a, a religious or spiritual purpose um, and mm -hmm. the sort of ecstatic dancing by uh, ascetics or dervishes or Sufi figures. And, uh, you know, there's many different kind of ways of interacting with music in that type of setting. Like, uh, you know, uh, novitiates will often, you know, kind of let the music uh, take them over and like they'll you know kind of uh, dance and, and be ecstatic but uh, you know the more exalted masters they're all about like you know internal movement you know uh, there's a story about Junaid where someone came up to him and was like oh you don't like you know during a listening session and they're like oh you don't like listening to, to music uh, you know you don't like moving around he's like you know he quotes the Quran he says something about you know how uh it's like a verse about the judgment day and how like mountains will pass like clouds, you know, saying like internally, you know, uh, you see mountains, but they will pass like clouds. So like he look, he's actually moving internally. But uh, mm -hmm. that's uh, all by way of saying there's another story from uh, Manakab al-Arafin, which we actually did a, an episode of Somal Jihad about where uh, there's a line that's like the hand that's raised in sort of uh, pretend ecstasy um, or that's raised to dance. Uh, you know, without that ecstatic state, that person's definitely going to hell. But if it is raised <laughs> in the ecstatic state, then they're definitely going to heaven. So that's like how, you know, sharp the distinction is that this sort of exalted sort of state of exception where you're, you know, able to participate in this sort of uh, liminal, like uh, this liminally illicit activity uh, that gives you a certain sanctity. But if you like, uh, you know, stumble on the way to doing that or you're faking it, then you are like the absolute worst. Fascinating. Let me ask you, so if jinn are like the umbrella term, then what would, like, is it, are demons separate from jinn or is it a subcategory? Is that it's how it works? a subcategory. In fact, yes, demons are separate. Uh, Islam, this is another important thing that I think maybe people might not know, uh, just like out of ambient knowledge. Like, Islam doesn't believe in fallen angels. 
So in Christianity, mm. like when you think about demons or in popular culture in the United States, like when you think about demons, that's part of their like pathos that they were once angels, um, you know, and that is true. Like, well, it's not true, uh, but it's partially true of one particular jinn who is not an angel, but who was at one time accepted among the angels and was very well beloved by Allah, uh, who is Iblis, uh, according to the Quran. You know, he is a jinn. He's not an angel. And that's why he was mm. able to fall because he was a jinn the entire time. Uh, he did achieve like an exalted rank and he was much beloved of uh, God, but he, you know, he is a jinn. And demons are, you know, uh, when the Quran uses the term shaitan, you know, there's ashaitan, which refers basically to Iblis uh, in the person of, of shaitan or Satan. And uh, there's also like shayatin, you know, like uh, Satan's. So, uh, and there's Satans of the jinn, and there's Satans of men. So there's, like, human beings who are pretty much Satans. Uh, but there's also demons who are, are bad, and they're, they're basically uh, Satans as well. And they're probably, you know, uh, they, they may be in league with Iblis uh, in some way. Uh, in yeah. Interesting. Because, like, I was reading about Iblis, and I was not making much progress, like, on my own, trying to figure out what was going on. So basically, uh according to that uh tradition iblis was a jinn yes he's, he and he is a jinn uh yes. yeah 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 uh and yes he has he always was a jinn the quran says very clearly like he is of the jinn is he still the analog to satan i mean like a yes, christian he is and okay. he has that same kind of in fact you know the miltonian kind of like tragic satan really goes further back than Milton, like in the Islamic tradition. Mm. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a book, I mentioned Mensur al-Hajj, this is you know, actually very convenient. Uh, you know, uh, Hopefully some of your listeners, maybe you're listening to Subliminal Jihad, so they'll be uh, tolerant of like my rambling uh, way of I speaking, think but, I think a lot of yeah. them are, so no worries. Yeah, or, but if not, I apologize for like my incredibly like tangential, discursive way of talking. But anyway, so this actually goes back to Halaj, which I mentioned before. He wrote a book, uh, or... Sorry, I don't believe the book was written by him, although it sometimes is attributed to him. It's, I think it's pretty obviously pseudo-epigraphic because it refers to his death. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, uh, it's a book called uh, Kitab al-Tawasin, Atawasin, uh, Ta and Sin, uh, the Arabic letters. Um, and uh, in that uh, book, or in that uh, piece of writing, which has a lot of esoteric and kind of uh, occultic material in it, you know, uh, letter ciphers uh, and things like that are sort of strokes of, of kind of uh, geomantic lines and, and that type of thing. Um, it, uh, it also has a lot of uh, d a sort of dialogues uh, featuring Shaitan and the idea that, or Iblis. Uh, and the idea in that is that uh, Iblis, he really was you know he actually loves god he does worship god in a way and he what he kind of like the uh, al-halaj's interpretation is that he didn't want to bow to adam because that's in the quran that's why satan gets kicked out you know it's not that he wanted to overthrow god necessarily uh or do some kind of war maybe in the sort of miltonian story that people people may know the story in the quran is that uh you know uh, allah made adam and he commanded the angels to bow to Adam. And uh, Iblis, who was, for whatever reason, there's various traditions about it, um, which maybe we can go into, but for whatever reason, he was included in that command because he was, like, among the angels. Um, mm. And even though he was of the jinn, which it says in that very same portion of the Quran. 
And uh, so he was included in the command, but he all the angels obeyed except for Iblis. And Iblis said, you know, uh, like, why should I, you know, I'm better than him. He's made of clay and I'm made of smokeless fire. You know, that's what the Quran says. So it comes out like, you know, a sort of sense of arrogance. Um, but Al-Halaj's interpretation is that Shaitan was in a way like just kind of a, a vulgar monotheist, you know, and he was... Uh, or, you know, uh, he was acting out of a sense of monotheism or a tawhid, where he was, tr he's like, I can't bow to something other than Allah, you know, I can't bow, you know, the same mm -hmm. way, like, we Muslims generally wouldn't bow before another person, uh, you know, that would be, like, pretty sacrilegious, you know, or bow before any kind of idol or something, certainly an idol made of clay, but what he failed to see is, like, the sort of light of Allah within Adam, uh, and he couldn't perceive like Allah's existence in him. That's a very like vaunted kind of like, or, you know, uh, you know, Sufi discourse, which kind of gets into this sort of idea of yeah. unity of existence and that stuff. And like, obviously it's like not, you know, uh, it, it's a, it's intended, you know, for like, uh, in it, its time, like, you know, it's a, this is like medieval type stuff. So like in its time, it's not something that like be like very widely circulated, but that is like a common hmm. Sufi idea, you know, of the, which, you know, is fundamentally true. There is a light of God, like within all of us. And even Shaitan does proceed from God. And he, you know, in the Quran, even, you know, uh, Iblis asks, you know, give me leave until judgment day. And I'll try to lead him astray. And Allah says, okay. Uh, it's not clear why. Maybe just because Allah is so merciful and he loves, you know, exercising mercy. Or it's unclear why. But, uh, you know, uh, um, Allahu Alam. Let me ask you a question. Is there like a implication that jinn have almost like a greater, de like a degree of free will similar to humanity? Yes, they definitely do. Okay. Because that makes a lot of sense, I guess. Interesting. Yeah, I think definitely they do more so than angels. Uh, yeah, And that's, yeah. I think, part of the reason why Iblis is able to fall and mm. angels generally aren't. Interesting. So between Iblis and, like, Christian conceptions of Satan, uh, I think you went over a lot of the differences. And then what are a lot of the... What would you say the similarities are, like... The similarities are definitely having at one time been in, you know, God's very good graces and then mm -hmm. uh, being kind of cast out and being like the inveterate foe of humankind and also having tricked Adam out of the garden. That's a key uh, similarity. Uh, um, gotcha. So, and then how, yeah. how does he fit into like the, uh, the end times? What is it? Eschatology? Yes. Like, is uh, he is he the driver for that, or I don't know if uh El Dajjal will be like, or if Dajjal will be indwelt by Shaitan. I mean, I think that they definitely like have something to do with each other, but I don't know if it's mm. like you know necessarily like the same kind of weird uh like uh. Three act structure that they have, like in the sort of futurist Christianity type stuff, where like the Antichrist is there for a while and then like he dies, but then Satan comes into him. I don't think that's really part of like the, you know, uh, any standard uh, Islamic narrative of uh, the end times and, and the Jal. Um, but mm. uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, like uh, Iblis would be on the side of the Jal and like they're definitely like kind of uh, uh, sympathetic forces. But uh, I don't know if they really are the same. Uh, they 
uh, yeah, I mean, again, I think maybe Dajal is like one of those uh, Shayatin all-ins, you know, he's one of the, the, the Satans of people, uh, the, gotcha. you know, the big Satan of people. Um, so let me, let me ask you then, uh, so right off the bat, so what is the uh, Islamic term for, I guess, a similar role to the Antichrist? Dajjal or uh, Masiya Dajjal would be the like you know go to term, but it's a little bit like is like uh you know in uh the Book of Revelations or where the Antichrist is discussed, is he called? I think he might be called Pseudo Christos or something, or because uh, there's a distinction between the false prophet and the Antichrist in Christian eschatology. A lot of the yeah. time, whereas in Islam, like the Dajjal, basically, literally, Messiah Dajjal is like the false prophet uh, or the false messiah. And uh, so kind of like the false Christ and the Antichrist, like those aren't different figures. In uh, Christianity, it's kind of like, you know, uh, like the Chronicles of Narnia book, like the last battle where they have like the evil monkey <laughs> who's kind of the false prophet and the like the donkey that's like the Antichrist, you know, uh, yeah. like that, uh, that distinction, like I, I don't necessarily think uh, is present. Like the Jal is kind of understood to be the Antichrist and the false prophet kind of in one, uh, which I think gotcha. really is kind of how most Christians at this point seem to see the antichrist like you don't really hear too much about the false prophet like these days uh you know as like a distinct kind of figure i know that like there is like in a lot of those books like uh you know left behind and stuff like that you know there's a separate character who's like i'm the false prophet blah blah blah. but you know uh i mean i think the book of revelation says there's going to be a lot of false prophets out there you know but uh, i think so yeah, yeah but, no because yeah. i i know enough like that the I guess you could say evangelical Christian conception. They have like almost a whole worldview built up apart from revelation. And then revelation of course is not at all clear. So like you're right. There's a lot of ambiguity with the Christian conception of the end times, I think. Yes. Uh, but one big similarity that I should mention is that in, you know, uh, Jesus will return in the state, like, you know, the Orthodox Sunni, uh, you know, uh, Islamic eschatology. Uh, mm -hmm. Jesus will come back um, and he will like, you know, there'll also be the Mahdi who will be like kind of uh, uh, another sort of messianic figure, uh, Muhammad al-Mahdi, who's like kind of in Shiism, he's kind of understood to be the hidden imam or uh, part of the line mm -hmm. of imams, uh, Shia imams, you know, descending from from Ali. Um, but uh, yeah, there will be the Mahdi and Jesus, but Jesus will return uh, and he will break crosses and like, you know, humiliate all the Christians for worshiping him <laughs> as God. And then he'll, you know, pray behind the Mahdi. That's the sort of orthodox Sunni uh, belief about Jesus' return. Uh, yeah, because he never truly died. You know, it was only an appearance that he did. Interesting. So let me ask you about Islam's role in Kabbalah, because as I've researched Kabbalah, and of course, by no means am I an expert, I mean, it, you see that there's both like a Christian Kabbalah, of course, the there are different occult traditions use Kabbalah. And then, of course, like in Islam, there is some form of Kabbalah as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, there is. I mean, a lot of like Jewish mysticism is like heavily influenced by, or Jewish esotericism, mm -hmm. heavily influenced by Islamic esotericism because like, you know, uh, the most thriving Jewish intellectual cultures at the height of Jewish intellectual, like Maimonides, you know, uh, mm -hmm. 
that was, you know, uh, in a Muslim society, you know, a Judeo-Arabic is like, you know, a great language of Jewish intellectual history, you know, uh, there's, uh, I read one book called, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's by, uh, I think, uh, Baha Ibn Pakuda. I could be completely wrong, but, oh, Duties of the Heart. It's called Duties of the Heart, and it's by a Jewish mystic. But it's really amazing because it's in Judeo-Arabic, and if you read it, like, you, uh, you know, which is basically Arabic, but with the Hebrew alphabet. And if you read it, like, it's so similar to a Sufi text, like, the language that's being used. Um... And yeah, it's uh, so there definitely is a very strong, I think, Islamic influence on uh, Jewish mysticism in general. And yeah, the equivalent of Kabbalah, which I, I guess would just be like letterism or uh, broadly like Harufism, like the idea of, of kind of like letter magic. Um, yeah, so that is a huge tradition in, in Islam, uh, you know, a, a, a gigantic thing. Uh, yeah, many different permutations of it, uh, many different uh, expressions of, of letterism. So I found this quote that I'd like to read and then just get your thoughts on it. The quote says, The belief that the Quran has both an exoteric and an esoteric meaning is fundamental to the sect of Ismaili Shiism. And this idea of hidden or secret knowledge appealed to many who could not understand why the world was so full of sorrow and misfortune when the prophet had shown shown the world the right way of living and worship certainly there was some secret knowledge of the world knowledge that was encrypted in the holiest of books the quran for those who were intelligent enough to see beyond the obvious meanings and could divine the hidden truths uh yes well there are various like well really like the forerunners of all like islamic esotericism are the the Hulat Shia groups uh, who like early groups, you know, oftentimes they would have like kind of false uh, prophetic figures or like quasi prophetic, like kind of uh, imam type leaders and, uh, you know, who often were had very bad reputations. It's hard to really say like, you know, I mean, we can assume that they were kind of like crazy, like uh, in, in some respects, but a lot of the time, the only material we have on them is heresiographies. So, like, you know, obviously we're getting, like, you know, a kind of biased account of what they were like. But ideas, like, you know, letterism, for instance, you know, in addition to some other, like, even more far out ideas. Um, the idea of, you know, uh, kind of someone being sort of raised up to heaven, uh, you know, uh, like the occultation, for instance. You first see that in these kind of hulat groups that then becomes a bit of a more mainstream idea. Um, and even some of the ideas that you later see... Uh, like the seed of certain ideas that you later see in Ibn al-Arabi in a more refined and much more formalized and, you know, much less kind of uh, wild and all over the place form you first see in uh, Hulat texts. And I think, uh, you know, there's there's some great work on uh, Hulat. I think uh, Moezi, I want to say Amir Moezi is someone who's written on it. Uh, there's a book called the, the, the Divine Guide in Early Shiism, it doesn't go into the Hulat so much, but there's also uh, some other work. Uh, but anyway, um, yes. Uh, but in terms of uh, Ismailism, that's a lot later. And they do have an esoteric interpretation of the Quran and what certain Quran verses mean. But the fact is that, like, you know, there's always been, like, uh, esoteric interpretations of the Quran. The Quran itself says that some of the verses are clear and some are majaz or allegorical. You know, some of them are like, it's obvious what they mean. Some are allegorical. But what the allegories are, like, aren't really quite um, 
clarified and this is like only people with insight will understand so that idea is in the in the quran you know that like certain people with insight will get it yeah. and others won't you know it may just be like okay like non-believers people who think this is all crap or that muhammad is a soothsayer or something but you know uh again like people have taken that to mean like oh there's an, a hidden meaning here and people have like you know read that in all sorts of like wild ways like you know there have been sects that just like totally had like you know, uh, just interpreting things in a, in a totally, like, you know, whatever, a totally uh, unorthodox or, like, you know, a way that's totally out of step with what, you know, your standard interpretation of the Quran would be. You know, one example that comes to mind that's, like, a more sort of down-to-earth version of that is uh, Sir al-Najim, uh, which now often is read in the context of the Miraj, which is Muhammad's, uh, you know, trip to, to heaven, uh, you know, his ascension. Mm -hmm to uh you know to to the low tree the furthest boundary you know uh and originally a lot of the time that was interpreted to be about his first revelation of jabril uh angel gabriel who uh revealed the quran to muhammad and uh you know through allah or uh, you know Allah revealed it through jabril but um yeah so that was seen to be about jabril by a lot of interpreters but then the standard interpretation came to be you know uh about the mirage and that sort of emanated from uh, Sufi groups where the mirage narrative was very important as kind of an allegory of, uh, you know, spiritual ascension, you know, of uh, uh, self-annihilation, spiritual ascension. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of that going on. So I wouldn't say that's necessarily confined to uh, is Ismailism. Uh, but what Ismailis yeah. do have is they have an imam, even to this day, like Nazari Ismailis, they have like an imam, you know, who... Uh, you know, like there's something like the 46th, uh, the Aga Khan, uh, maybe you've heard of him, you know, he's, uh, the leader of, of the Nazari. I want to say Nazari. I hope that's the right group. Cause, uh, uh, Ismaili's today and he's just like some dude, like, you know, like a rich dude. Um, sorry, <laughs> no offense to, to my Ismaili brothers, uh, in calling him some dude, but, uh, you know, he looks like a normal, like very westernized guy. You know, he's not like uh, Ayatollah Khomeini or something in his appearance. Uh, and he's very mm -hmm. much like, I think that they even like drink and they don't fast and things like that uh, because they put a lot more priority on the interpretation of the imam, which, you know, like the fact is that the Quran like came from Muhammad, like the way that the original community of Muslims experienced it was that Muhammad would reveal the Quran and they would have him right there to ask him questions and that he would help interpret it and things like that. So after his death, that creates a big crisis and a big change. Mm. So then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well we have what the, the revelations were and uh, now we have to figure out a new way to interpret them. Uh, we have to solve this problem somehow. One solution is that, okay, like, you know, this light of prophecy uh, is being passed down in some way to a uh, sort of uh, subordinate figure, like to an imam or a wali. Um, and, you know, that is going to be the person who helps us to interpret the Quran instead of having, you know, uh, a, a, you know sort of a, a judiciary structure or, you know, uh, legal scholars or, so, you know, to sort of... Uh, do exegesis or to defer to a caliph or in some way or, you know, his approved jurist, something like that. We're going to have like this, you know, imam who, uh, based on descent from the prophet, he's going to interpret it. So that's definitely what the Ismailis believed in. And, you know, back way back, you know, uh, when you have like the uh, Hassan al-Saba, you know, in the, the, the Fatimid era where you know famously with the, the assassins and everything, you know, um, mm -hmm. they were Ismaili. Um, but, uh, 
you know, they, uh, and today when you have the Nazari Ismailis, he's, he's, he has a wide latitude in terms of interpreting the Quran, like his word about what the Quran means goes, you know, if he says like, oh, you know, the whole thing about like not drinking, like that's wrong, like that goes, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's got a wide latitude in terms of interpretation and, uh, yeah, but they definitely don't have a, uh, monopoly on, uh, Islamic, uh, like what you would call Kabbalism. In fact, like yeah. definitely not like, it's not mostly an Ismaili Shia phenomenon, even though certainly like, you know, uh, I mean, in Shiism in general, like Twelvers, you know, in the Safavid period, they definitely got up to a lot of, uh, Kabbalism or Harufism. The early modern period is really the heyday of that. So that would be after like, you know, the sort of so-called Shia century where you had the Fatimids. That was like kind of the, the time when uh, the Ismailis had like the most power politically when they had control of Egypt and uh, the, the Fatimid Caliphate. You know, what really interests me is like, so there's this concept of the, uh, you know, the exoteric and the esoteric interpretation of the Quran and that it's like mm -hmm. perfectly written you know, not a single word is, you know, out of place or, you know, and yes. it just reminds me of like, I think it was a while back, I was reading a lot about Jewish mysticism. And I think it was the Chabads who like, they strongly feel that like, not a single word of Torah is incorrect. It's all, you know, either has a, you know, exoteric or esoteric meaning. And I'm like, oh, like, <laughs> that's probably deeply informed by like, these islamic strains of thought basically yeah it's quite possible i don't know too much about uh Chabad, but i feel like they might have do they have like uh like sabatian roots or something like i feel like i know like one orthodox sect like did uh have like actually some kind of like islamic uh connection yeah because i think that like there were there was something about like they were in spain like i'm not certain the exact heritage but like i would not be surprised if like yeah there was some connection there yeah i remember i feel like i remember reading that like yeah yeah i could be just completely uh wrong so apologies if i am but i remember reading that like you know there was some kind of like sabatian heritage to like a more mainstream orthodox group that like you know you mm. wouldn't expect would have like some kind of connection there like uh but i don't think it was necessarily the chabad lubavitchers yeah but yeah let me ask you then uh so who was sabati zevi um because i'm only just starting to like learn about him and it's seems like quite a story yeah i mean he's talked about i think in the book when prophecy fails uh i, I believe uh unless i'm thinking of a different book that deals with a similar subject but he's a fascinating Some, figure something you something yeah. you never want your prophecy to fail <laughs> yeah exactly well but the whole point is that like sometimes when uh prophecy fails like it actually like increases the devotion of the uh you know uh, fo your followers and that's kind of what happened in the case of Savati Zevi who was like a, a messianic figure in in the 17th century um in a, of a Jewish sect you know he basically uh, claimed to be the long-awaited messiah but uh you know not only did like he not lead to like the kingdom on earth or uh but he actually ended up converting to islam uh and so that was uh like a big uh you know shake up for uh his followers 
and uh, some of them actually followed him in converting to Islam. Uh, so mm-hmm. they, you know, uh, basically just continued to be his followers, but they became Muslims. Um, and that actually is like a source of like, uh, you know, many conspiracy theories today in modern day Turkey um Mm. because uh yeah basically like i think that he was pressured into converting to islam like because you know they were like threatened him with uh person like you know prosecution for like you know inciting the the jewish people like against the the sultan um but yeah so uh like now like basically the donmeh which are like sort of the uh the former sabatians or the the community that is thought to like you know come from the uh, Sabatian converts, they're seen as being like kind of like maybe a shadowy cabal, you know, behind the scenes, like uh, the same way, like, you know, that people talk about the Illuminati or, uh, you know, the Freemasons (laughs) in America, like, you know, because of course, you know, uh, all like conspiracy theorizing, like there's always like pockets of like Jew related stuff, obviously, like uh, anti-Semitic, like spins on, on everything. So like, that's, one big uh flavor that's popular like uh in turkey that like the donma like converts uh who followed sabati zevi uh interesting are like behind it all you know i did not know that i know that there's some really interesting like conspiracy theories and paranoia about all of the jews who were forced to convert in spain and i Mm -hmm. think a few of the other countries like I mean, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, well, that's a big concern. I think that's part of the reason why, like, the Jesuits were subjects of suspicion early on, because, you know, mm. really, like, not after not too long, they did kind of just say, like, no, like, you know, no convert converts can be part of the Jesuits. But at the very beginning, it was a lot of people who were uh, who were conversos or uh, oh, in the know. in the Jesuits themselves. Yes early on interesting uh but then they were like like basically probably because people were so suspicious of the fact that their ranks were swollen with converts uh i think they did crack down uh pretty shortly after the formation of the order but at first there there was a big attraction for you know uh converts from judaism and islam cool i think that this will be pretty tight compared to some of your shows but yeah right yeah uh, I, hopefully yeah i think like you know two hours uh you know we'll shoot for that yeah, yeah. i guess that's that's sometimes what we i mean we've kind of given up on trying to shoot for that on swivel jihad <laughs> that was originally what we would shoot for um well, so, what was the longest one can... like what was the longest like five hours it's absolutely absurd yeah yeah there's definitely a five hour episode out there i mean at this point it's gotten <laughs> where like you know every single q a is like multiple parts like we get we, we've we've literally like gotten worse at answering the questions in a timely manner like it used to be like we could do 20 questions in one sitting then it became like 10 and last time we did like five and it took like three hours so like what is happening so- uh but I, I, I deeply sympathize because, like, I was doing pretty good answering about two an episode for Q&A. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I got to one question that has become, like, five episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, like, my shows are shorter, but, like, I, I, I sympathize with the creep for sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so here's a question for you. And it's maybe more personal. Early on, you spoke about infiltrating the temple of Set, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, because you spoke about that at a pretty good length. 
So what was your experience with magic in general? Like what led uh, you honestly, to it or what were like, you doing? Honestly, like my experience with magic is not real. Like I lied to them. I just made up a bunch of stuff. I consider myself to be knowledgeable <laughs> about magic, but like mm -hmm. my, like the magic rites that I, or the magic operations that I performed, like that I told the temple of that I performed were made up. Uh, I told them that like I did divination using a Nokian chess based on like, you know, my interest in like I, I interested in chess and, uh, you know, I am interested in, in Crowley, you know, I've read his works and I'm interested in the I, I find the game Enochian chess to be interesting. Uh, so, you know, I had knowledge of that. So I was able to to make up a fake ritual that I had done, uh, you know, as part of the interview. Um, and so, yeah, look, I'm not a really big uh, called practitioner. You know, I have done a little bit of back when I was in the Temple of Set. Um, I was thinking again, like I said in my podcast, like I just, you know, between like everything that I'm doing, like, you know, you kind of have to like go to a ritual and like make contact with like a pylon and like have someone advance you to the level of adept. I mean, I would mm -hmm. have like, you know, gotten much more dirt and simple set, you know, but I mean, maybe they would be more like, um, you know, maybe they would be more, uh, like, uh, upset about me, like, leaking stuff then. Uh, although I, I imagine they're, like, pretty much in shambles now, like, with uh, Aquino's death. They seem to be kind of on, you know, like, limping along, like, even when I was, mm. I was uh, in there. But, like, during that time, like, I did, like, kind of learn, like, some tarot card stuff, like, you know, but that's pretty much the extent of it. Like, uh, you know, that's, that's really, like, the only, like, stuff that I've actually done uh everything else like in terms of my i consider myself to be like well read in terms of that stuff but like i didn't have to actually like show up or like you know i didn't have to like they didn't like say like you must conjure a fireball you know it wasn't like harry potter's like sat exams mm -hmm. or something like i just made up some <laughs> lies uh which is a form of magic uh so you know really i did show my magical prowess um yeah no i sympathize with that because i I try to read, like, I've read, I guess, a fair amount about magic, and I've done absolutely none of it. Like, <laughs> I haven't done a single ritual, uh, you know, excluding religious practice, right? Yeah, right. That, yeah, exactly. That's, uh, yeah, that would, I guess, be a ritual. Like, prayer is, like, a ritual. Like, dhikr, you know, which I mentioned. Like, you know, repetition of kind of, like, Islamic formulae. Like, that mm -hmm. obviously, that's, like, a ritual component. And it's generally, like, considered to be discrete from magic like with but in the islamic tradition but of course there is like once you get to the highest level of abstraction where you're like okay like magic is a way of affecting transformation on like the self or on the world like through will that like you know then you get to the point where like prayer can uh you know maybe uh fall into that category but ultimately like you know islam oh as we all know you know means submission uh so uh, that's kind of more about, it's less about exerting one's own will and more about submission to the will of Allah, you know, uh, mm -hmm. whereas, especially in the left-hand path, it's all about, you know, exerting one's own will and really like the aggrandizement of the self, which, uh, you know, the Islamic esoteric tradition is very much opposed to. Like the self really, like to go back to the topic of shaitan, like the self is kind of seen as being like, you know, uh, uh, kind of and uh, shaitan allegorically like uh that same work that i i read for that uh sort of slender manish story from before um 
you know, uh, there's this one passage where it says the devil uh, or shaitan, you know, is twofold. Uh, there's a concrete or, or formal devil, you know, a suri devil, and an abstract or, or meaning-based devil, Mahnahwi. Uh, uh, um, and the concrete devil, that's the one known as Iblis, uh, and the abstract devil is the lower self, you know, nafs. Uh, the abstract devil does certain things that the concrete devil cannot do. For instance, while the concrete devil teaches good deeds to the human being, intending to make him renounce them later, the abstract devil resorts directly to the, e to e the greatest evil, using goodness as a pretext. He acknowledges the prophetic tradition concerning the reward due to those who observe the fine practices of Allah's messenger and to those who disseminate them. Then he plays a trick of inciting invented traditions. Satan himself is not capable of going to this length. To give another example, the concrete devil teaches the human being to recite the Quran in a loud voice and envisages pitfalls in this. As for the lower self, which is the abstract devil, it converts this teaching into the bad morality of a hypocrite who makes a public show of his Quranic recitation and his passionate desire to gain a good reputation, and so on and so forth. So in that formulation, like the lower self is actually more dangerous and a more uh, insidious type of devil than Shaitan or Iblis himself, hmm. uh, because, you know, one's own pride is, you know, can conceive of things that not even Satan would. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and in fact, that really is consistent with what uh, Satanists or the Temple of Set believes, because they do believe that the devil and the self are one, and that they're worshiping the self. Uh, but you know, through like the quote-unquote allegory, which has uh, a varying reality depending on what type of Satanist you are, um, you know, uh, of of Satan. So, like for the Temple of Set, they do believe that there is kind of a. Uh, uh, poss magic is, is they do believe more in the reality of magic or in kind mm. of uh, spiritual realities and things like that uh, and in the effectiveness on the objective world of their transformations of their subjective universe or of ceremonial magic you know the church of satan they are like you know more sort of atheistic and they don't consider themselves to be like a religion in the same way uh, so yeah. they the temple of seconds are set more real the Church of Satan considers Satan to be, but they both are into self-worship uh, through the allegory of, of Shaitan, uh, and it really is, uh, you know, the same kind of paradigm. Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. Um, let me let me ask you another question here. So I really love like Islam's, you know, submission. Like I think that is, you know, a beautiful metaphor. Her name, you know, but separate from that, so. Would you say that Islam holds up the distinction between like right hand, left hand magic in general? Yeah, I would actually, um, because I think that there definitely is, uh, and the, the like where the line is drawn depend, like uh, it can vary, but mm. there definitely is, uh, and on, in some cases, like you know, mo almost all like operations of magic would be on one side, but. We do have the tradition of, of Solomon, you know, uh, he was, is a prophet, you know, and he bound Jinn to his will and he was a good guy. You know, he's a prophet like Islam has great mm -hmm. esteem for prophets, you know, in Judaism, generally like, you know, uh, the prophets and the kings of the past, like they can be like really flawed people. Uh, Islam generally like yeah, they try to, uh, you know, uphold the prophets as being like the you know as uh some people say they're even like totally infallible you know or that uh if they have mm -hmm. foibles they're very slight or there's some purpose to them or something like that mm -hmm. so uh 
Muslims have very high esteem for for our prophets. Um, and Solomon, you know, he basically practiced magic or, you know, through Allah's uh, bequ- uh, bequest to him. And similar to Moses. Moses really is a sorcerer uh, in a way. You know, he uses, uh, like, Allah's bequests, you know, to... Yeah, no, uh, he sort of... very explicitly goes up against the Pharaoh's sorcerers and does, right, yes. like, yeah... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I remember one of my like uh, favorite little things is that you know the the Egyptians prided themselves on their magic, so Allah sent them Moses, who was like you know a sorcerer, and then the Romans pride themselves on their medicine, so they sent uh, Jesus as a healer, and then the Arabs mm. prided themselves on you know their poetry, so uh, Muhammad was sent to them you know uh, with the, with the Quran, but um, yeah. Uh, anyway, yes. I, so there definitely is kind of a distinction where. I mean, magic really is not seen too differently in Islam versus, like, Christianity or other religious traditions. Like, magic is something that really, like, travels a lot. Like, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a uh, epistemological or conceptual germ that circulates a lot. You know, like, really, like, the borders uh, between, like, the discursive fields or, like, the epistemic worlds of different religions like aren't like totally like hermetically like no pun intended sealed you know like they uh actually do like you know things do travel and concepts of magic like in the the west you know are very heavily influenced by concepts of magic in uh the islamic world and 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 vice versa so these ideas travel back and forth and i yeah so i think that the whole right hand left hand distinction there definitely is a concept of the utility of, of magic. You know, it's a tool, like a knife. You know, a knife can be used for, like, very innocuous and harmless things, uh, you know, or it can be used to commit, like, egregious sins. And then you have tools uh, that maybe are in the same, like, kind of category that can be used in... I'm trying to think of a better metaphor. Like, how about uh, gene editing? Gene editing, right? <laughs> like, uh, you know, everyone believes in the possibility of gene editing and has, like, a similar concept to how gene editing works. Or something, you know, like, our GMO foods, you know, or something like that. Or, uh, you know, artificial selection in agriculture, you know. You could say, like, you know, the theory of, like, Lysenkoism was different from, you know, the... the uh, what, what was the name of that guy? Uh, I'm like blanking on his name. The genetics guy. We all learned to do with squares, punnett squares or whatever, uh, you know, Mendelev. like, uh, yeah. Uh, right, uh, yeah. Mendelev. Yeah. He it was a chemistry guy, but yeah, I don't know. But anyway, my oh, point is yeah, that yeah, like, yeah. you know, these are like sciences that people might have like different theories about them, but the, on the baseline, they have a similar like concepts and like, you know, you could say like, for instance, in gene editing, you know, you could use that to like create, uh you know like uh food that is like uh very nourishing or something and like end world hunger uh or you could use that to create like perfidious seeds that like you know destroy the soil so like nothing else can grow and like you know they uh or you could use it to create like uh, some kind of bioweapon or something like that you know like so there's both like uh it like sinister uses of neutral tools and there are certain tools that might have the same principles as the, you know, more neutral tools uh, that are, you know, the same principles of construction that are bad. And if you are getting a neutral tool from an entity or a force or an agency that is somehow bad, then, like, you know, that is definitely going to have bad results. 
Like, you know, if you make a deal with Monsanto to get, like, a medicine or something, you know, the medicine might be good, but, you know, the pact that you've made to get that medicine, you've gotten it from, like, a sinister entity, you know, so <laughs> that's not going to pan out well, ultimately. Like, there's something in your deal where it's like, oh, you relax your restrictions on, like, in order to get our medicine, like, it's made with this, like, compound, which previously had been banned, but in order to get it, you just have to, like, you know, use your restrictions. Like, oops, like, now we own, like, all your crops or something, you know, like, that's, <laughs> uh, you know. So even if the medicine itself might be fine, you know, the uh, if you're dealing with, like, you know, a sinister force and getting it, then it won't be fine. And then there are, of course, there are certain tools like Agent Orange, that you could say, like, you know, regardless of their source, like, well, there is no, like, good source that would use them. Yeah, exactly. So these are the type of, you know, very messy and muddy moral determinations that come into play when talking about, like, the morality of magic. But, you know, in the same way where, like, you know, today, like, chemical weapons or something, like, you know, you don't want to be fighting a war against someone who has chemical weapons, uh, again, like, you know, if you don't, you know, you or someone who has planes or something, if you don't. So in the past, you know, the the Kufar have astrology, you know, the Kufar have sorcerers. <laughs> so like, you know, for you to not have them, like it's a huge geostrategic disadvantage, you know, like that it's just would be, yeah, like a huge disadvantage. Now, let me let me ask you a question then. So setting aside the like, general religious practices of Islam. So what would be like an Islamic, like fair use or like good use of ceremonial magic? Uh, Ceremonial magic, like that type of high magic, like that developed like sort of in the, in the Renaissance, that's Mm -hmm. a little bit like outside of, uh, you know, the, the Islamicate like occult tradition as far as I know it's a little bit you know there are, there's definitely ceremonial components but like you know what I'm picturing where like some guy has like a robe and a sword and is like calling the corners <laughs> or like doing sort of John D type magic that you know even though there are like similarities and there are like you know you can do like summoning to uh, summon like a jinn you know, or something like that, or, or ask uh, for uh, a bequest from a jinn. So yeah, there are ceremonial components to that, uh, where like you know certain materials are used. So yeah, just my 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 uh, my sort of uh, the connotation that I have, my reflexive uh, image of ceremonial magic is not really a term that I uh, think of in Islamic context. But really, when you think about it, there are uh, analogs. So a fair use would be again, it depends, and like the political context really like is the one where you would most see something like that it would be mm-hmm. that a ruler would want like those resources uh a ruler would want either usually it would be like dreams interpreted divination mm-hmm. performed but in certain cases you know a ruler might want uh this type of thing that would be like you know and of course you know there would be people like you know there's like a folk magical tradition as well or there'd be people yeah. who would be wanting to like, you know, do like love spells or, or things like that. But uh, that's a little bit different from like, uh, you know, ceremonial, like high magic that uses a court context, um, like in a court context, you know, in an elite context, you would see, you know, it would mostly be like, you know, a fair use thing would be like, we need this to help the, the sultan or the emir or the, the caliph in some way. Let me ask you. So I think you mentioned King Solomon, and I know a lot of ceremonial magic 
uh, whether Christian or occult or what have you, or Jewish, uh, focuses on different purported, like, basically like spells to summon different jinn or spirits off of some like Solomonic, like, you know, rituals. Is there any of that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely people do perform jinn magic, uh, to kind of Congress with jinn. Um, it's, uh, again, like these are controversial things. Uh, Mm. and like definitely like in today's like climate, uh, it is like, you know, depending on where you are, like, you know, uh, like, certainly, like, if you're, like, in Birmingham with a bunch of Salafis, like, this idea is, like, really beyond the pall. But, like, if you're in, yeah. like, you know, India, like, then it might be more thinkable or in certain other places, you know. So, uh, in certain areas of, of India or Pakistan, then it might be more thinkable. It really depends. Like, today, like, you know, there's been a huge transformation in Islam in the same way that, you know, as you may hear, like, many uh, polemicists say, like, Islam needs a reformation, you know, like, because uh, it's, like, the dumbest uh, paradigm you could possibly have, or, like, you know, some religions are just, like, lagging behind others, and they need to go through all the exact steps, like, even though the context is totally different. But the fact is that Islam, in a way, has experienced the, uh, you know, aftershocks of the Reformation, which is, like, the sort of Salafi or, or modernist movement, which has uh, had the effect of cracking down on a lot of traditionally very orthodox practices like tomb visitation, you know, like uh, yeah. the whole phenomena really of thriving Sufi orders as like, uh, you know, the kind of linchpin of orthodox Islam. Um, so it reminds me of like how in Christianity, uh, like doing both folk magic and even some of this like John D. Enochian angel magic was like not necessarily frowned upon. If you could mm-hmm. still be a good Christian and do it, where yeah. or you know at least there was like a wider latitude. So would you say you're saying that now Islam is sort of like as a whole sort of leaning away from that as well? Uh, I would definitely say that, uh, like, today, that stuff, I think it's less popular across the board, uh, but, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I almost would say that maybe uh, in the Western world, maybe, like, kind of a de-Christianized occultism is, like, even more popular, you know, but I would say that, yeah, like, uh, yeah. possibly, like, post-Reformation, uh, maybe there has been like kind of uh, a break that's happened, but I don't know, like, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say, I would just say that in general, like, you know, the early modern period was like a heyday of that type of uh, magic, you know, and that type of, of occultism. Uh, and then it was really kind of like merged into, you know, like one of those things was like chemia or chemistry, you know, like the mm-hmm. type of thing, like, you know, that just merges into, like uh, modern day sciences, you know, like all those people like Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, they were all occultists. So like, you know, there is a seamless transition from like, you know, or really the great figures of like the scientific revolution, like they were all occultists. So yeah, like they're, uh, they, they just kind of evolved. Like, so that's kind of the reason why you don't really see like the same exact type of thing being as popular. But back then, certainly like, even though there were, like, varying discourses about it, uh, definitely, like, certain things that you might consider magical, like, for one, like, definitely dream interpretation, talismans, uh, 
uh, geomancy, that type of stuff is all, like, really accepted. Uh, gin magic up to a point, too. Like, mm. there is a little bit of a distinction between, uh, you know, that stuff. Like, it does kind of uh, get to a certain level. But especially, like, you know, because the people who would be patronizing these, uh, you know, philosophers and uh, these kind of... Uh, you know, uh, dervishes and things or, or occultists, they would usually be like elite figures. You know, uh, the elites were very big into uh, Sufism in general, and they were also like into occultism uh, for mostly geostrategic reasons because its applications were like, you know, political. They had pol it usually in a political context. Like they would be about how to win battles uh, or how to uh, like, you know, perceive your enemy's movements in advance. That would mainly be the goal of doing this, uh, you know, in an elite context. That is very fascinating because I know my listeners have expressed an interest in wanting to know, like, what the elites, you know, across cultures, uh, like, what they use magic for. And I have provided, you know, some, you know, examples, but, like, that is a really interesting one that, like, is so Islamic rulers would have an interest in like astrology in some divination basically yes oh absolutely there's an amazing uh story where uh about Jahangir who was a a, a Mughal uh sultan or a ruler and he uh like had I'll try to remember the story but it's uh you know it might be uh imperfect he basically saw like an owl um, outside his window before like a big uh, battle. And uh, he was worried because this owl he thought was like an omen of defeat. So he immediately mm. like uh, got his gun and like, you know, blasted the owl, you know. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he had the like a, a portrait like commissioned of him it's a famous picture of him standing atop uh like the globe um like with a bow and arrow i'm gonna see if i can uh find it uh and yeah uh he's standing atop the globe with his bow and arrow yeah and he's shooting the arrow into the head of his enemy i think malik ambar yeah and the globe you know it has the um you know, like, uh, the ox, uh, holding it up and the fish underneath the ox, you know, uh, Bahamut. Uh, and you actually can see all these astrological symbols in the sky around him. Uh, and, uh, if you search, like, Jahangir, uh, with, uh, bow and arrow, uh, you'll probably find it on Google Images. I'm looking at it now. But, yeah, you can actually see, like, on top of his enemy's head, the owl is standing. And his gun is leaning against the pole that his enemy's head is speared on. Uh, so this actually, this picture actually has like talismanic qualities. So it's helping him to like, you know, transfigure his destruction of the owl into his destruction of his enemy and kind of transform, uh, you know, the gunshot into this like kind of world conquering, uh, arrow, uh, you know, uh, release. Uh, and yeah, so that type of thing. They would be very, very, very interested in a book. I think where I heard that story is the book, uh, The Millennial Sovereign, by which, uh, yeah, I think that people, you know, if they have the interest that you mentioned in terms of like understanding like how different rulers have taken advantage of, of the occult or of mysticism, um, mm -hmm. it's called The Millennial Sovereign, uh, Sacred Kinship and Sainthood in Islam. It's by uh, A. Afzar Moyen, M O I N. That's where I heard that story. Uh, so you can probably find the 
the complete form of it uh, in there. But yeah, there's many such uh, stories. And if you look at like occult texts, most of them will be like either, you know, commissioned by like, you know, uh, like elite figures, uh, you know, mm. uh, by patrons who have an interest in this type of thing. Uh, or they will like just be like the, the type of content that they'll have will obviously be directed towards that purpose. It'll be like, well, you know, there's a story about like a sultan who used magic, like, or used this particular magical formula, which I'll now reproduce below. Um, yes, and there's a big crossover with that, and like ideas of, uh, you know, harufism or kind of like letter magic, or the idea that like the entire secrets of creation or the ontological fabric of the world is encoded in the letters of, of the Arabic alphabet. Uh, you know, it's mm. a very complex idea, but there's a lot of like, you know, political foment around like different letters, letters groups, like uh, in different uh, sort of Harufi movements. Like uh, there is like sort of a whole hubbub with uh, that book I mentioned, uh, Asrar i Qasimi, The Secrets of Qasim. That's probably named for Qasim i Anvar. Uh, who was like a very famous uh, Sufi uh, of uh, Tamurid Harat. And he, uh, you know, he like, you know, was popular there for a very long time. He had a big following, but he eventually ended up being ousted because he was connected to like an assassination plot uh, that was performed by a Harufi against the Sultan, uh, Shah Rukh. Uh, but, you know, it was unclear like whether he actually had connections with them. It's all like very murky. It's a very interesting historical conspiracy. Uh, but like around these these Harufis and this Harufi movement. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, so there there is a lot of like you know political context and stuff, and it all had to do a lot with like because the image of the saint and the image of the king they really uh, go hand in hand a lot of the time, and uh, one draws power from the other in many ways, or the symbols of the other. Let me let me ask you. So, all those types of magic, they would have been considered not left hand, right? They would. That's the sort of like more of a right hand type of magic, like they astrology really and like. Yeah, mm -hmm. they don't really talk about. Uh, yeah, yeah, they don't really talk about left hand and right hand in that way, but they mm -hmm. do definitely consider some magic to be bad. Uh, they don't say right hand versus left hand, but they definitely do consider some magic to be bad. Or here's a good example. There's a book. Uh, this is like, again, like I'm just sweeping across. Like, so this is completely out of different context from like the early modern Persia. This is like, you know, uh, sort of late medieval slash early modern, uh, you know, more late medieval uh, Arab world. Egypt, I think. There's a book. Uh, it's called, it has a very generic title. Uh, Kitab al-Asrar, uh, I think. Or, oh, Kitab al-Kash. Asrar, but uh, it's translated into English. There's a there's a version of you can get that's called the Book of Charlatans, which is more accurate to what it's about. The Arabic title just means like the Book of Ex Revealing Secrets, which could be about anything. Like there's a million books like with similar titles like that, which like mm -hmm. you know might be about like genuine divine secrets or something. But this book is all about like you know fraudsters like of different kinds, you know. Uh, and there's one part where he talks about you know fake. Uh, shakes or fake uh, miracle workers and he says like you know these fake shakes will get trees to bow to them uh, and you think you know they're doing a miracle but really what they do is they mix this concoction and they bury it in the ground of the tree for 40 days and the tree you know will then like once they say these prayers the tree will bow to them and people think it's a miracle but really it's a trick and it's like, well, you know, by our contemporary standards, like being able to make a tree bend down in prostration to you by like interring like some jar of like alchemical substances, like that's not really, that wouldn't be like a trick that would be considered to be like quote unquote real magic. <laughs>
magic, but like, you know, that would fall under like uh charlatanry, at least by by that standard, you know. Uh yeah. but you know, you could definitely use uh magic for like bad purposes, like, you know, the evil eye, cursing people. You know, it really comes down to again, like in this world morality can be like very fluid so a lot of the time like yeah. it, it seems justified to you and you can consult with like your islamic morality but ultimately like you know uh you like you know you can consult with people who have a sort of vaunted spiritual station but you know we're all kind of in the dark here uh barring like a true revelation you know we're not prophets we're not flawless so you know so that's that's what i wanted to ask you so like this different stuff that like sultans and rulers would sometimes engage in would that be considered like by like the conception of the time to be like justified or like good magic or would that is there ever a time when they're like yeah and that sultan was doing some like bad magic sometimes after the fact or like you know enemies like later on yeah definitely mm. you'll hear story like you know the same way that you'll hear about like you know, uh, unpopular rulers in, in the Euro European history, like mm -hmm. that there were sorcerers, they were performing magic. Like, yeah, definitely. Like people who were evil. In fact, like, you know, I'm sure I, I almost feel like Jahangir probably said that Malik Ambar was like trying to curse him. Uh, and that people were, you know, would do like evil magic. I mean, definitely it was believed that there were like evil sorcerers out there, like, you know, who were going to do stuff. Uh, and, like, if a ruler, you know, of course, the people who are, like, friends with him, like, his buddies, they would f feel the magic was fine. But uh, I don't know if there was ever anybody who was, like, deposed purely because, like, they were perceived to be too doing too much evil magic um, yeah. or something like that. Or who, like, you know, the people rose up against them just because, like, they could not deal with, like, the the type of magic that he was doing. Uh, not that, like, immediately comes to mind. Seems like that rarely happens with European rulers either, so... Yeah. <laughs> Royal prerogatives and all that. Right. Um, yeah, and a lot of the time, you know, that it's kind of, like, privileged knowledge, you know, that, uh, mm -hmm. like, generally, like, you know, these elite masters of the... You know, it's not for the awam, you know, the, the costs or the, the elites uh, are going to be, you know, talking to the, in the elite circles and communing, communing with them. And, uh, you know, this stuff is for their consumption mostly. Now, let me ask you, or I just, so I was looking through, I got some books on Islamic magic, right? Mm -hmm. And I was just skimming them mainly just to know of things to, you know, ask you about. And I saw these Islamic seals that, I think that what they had was surah on them, like scriptures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But basically others seem to just have basically magical squares with like mm -hmm. sometimes just letters on them. Yeah. And one was basically, it looked to me to be exactly like the talisman of Jupiter that Joseph Smith had, which mm -hmm. he got that from Francis Barrett's The Magus book, which I think that came from agrippa like his magical books and like lord knows where he got it from right like probably oh yeah Jewish or islamic tradition jupiter yeah sorry i had not seen this talisman of jupiter mm. before but yeah this is a very standard like magic square uh which is like a mm -hmm. super popular form of magic in islam uh like you know and like probably but magic squares were particularly i think popular in islam uh and basically, there's like a numerical principle to how these work, I think. Usually, I think the, the letters in this probably, I'm guessing, 
have numerical values, which is very common that they have like there's a there's a mm. numerical value assigned to the numbers and each row and sometimes the diagonals will add up to uh, the same number. And that's what will give it the sort of talismanic protective power. So that's, yeah, a very common thing. And these were even used, I think, in slave revolts in the Americas by Muslims uh, who were enslaved. Really? Yeah, in, in Brazil, I think. Oh, okay, in Brazil. Gotcha. No, that's yeah, in yeah, very Americas, interesting. Not in the United States that I know of, but, uh, you know, I feel like, I mean, it may have been the case that some, because a lot of, certain enslaved Muslims, even in the United States, were, you know, people who had been marabouts or who had knowledge of these type of things, so... Uh, there may have been some practice of it. And I think that you can see some of that uh, survival of these kind of uh, beliefs uh, in some uh, black American traditions. So, uh, you know, that might, you know, even like the supreme mathematics, you know, of the, uh, the uh, what's it called? The uh, 5% nation, you know, they definitely believe in sort of uh, number-based ciphers and things like that. So uh, that might be in some way like a, an attenuated survival from this stuff. But yeah, uh, these magic squares like a huge huge deal um yeah yeah are they like just in general like maybe not necessarily these but like including them like the magic seals are they still used uh i think that that is something that yeah you might still find used and i think you know would be again like some like muslims like probably like salafis who like are very vigilant about like any kind of shirk or things like that but the type of thing I think like is so widespread that like uh, you know you'll still see usage of that uh, just because it's such a popular form of like prophylactic or other mm. uh, magic. Um, in fact, yeah, I think that uh, like powwow type stuff, like powwow magic, like uh, that was practiced like in that famous powwow murder that happened in the United States. That does involve like kind of magic squares, right? Uh, um, I'm not it, familiar yeah. with that. What what was that? Um, it was like a kind of magic that was practiced like uh, in like the Pennsylvania Dutch culture. Uh, and there was like this famous murder called the powwow murder that happened. Uh, I forget when exactly, but uh, it was, I, I want to say that it was like in the early 20th century. But yeah, it was like kind of based on some kind of witchcraft uh hubbub that happened i don't remember the exact details but um yeah there's a book called the long lost friend uh which i guess is yeah. a 19th century book yeah okay i'm seeing some details here i guess it was a murder in 1928 yeah and so yeah i think pennsylvania and yeah I guess this actually has like different spells and mostly like prayers and and uh you know remedies and things so but oh no but here this is in magic square yeah the sator the sator square that you see uh hmm. so a similar principle yeah but yeah magic <laughs> square is you know widely widely popular so i imagine that those type of things might still have some use today uh certain people may may use them uh, I like I doubt like the the Gulf like monarchs use them you know anything like that you know <laughs> or even that like Imran Khan uses them uh, you know but who knows um, gotcha <clears throat> so getting close I wouldn't to wrapping... put it past like Erdogan or Imran Khan <laughs> to, like, use a magic square for a certain situation I, w I was gonna say like you sure the Gulf monarchs specifically themselves might not use it. 
Uh, well, I feel like they're more like the people who would be like, you know, anti-Magic Square and they're just like such like degenerate like freaks that, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel like using a Magic Square is like, um, you know, that's almost shows like a greater uh, contact mm. with like Islam to me than like the the uh, than the Gulf Mogs are capable of. Like they're okay. they're like buying like a picture of like jesus christ or something like you know for a billion zillion dollars like um you know that's like outrageous to me like they you know they they don't have yeah they only care okay. about your jets and like being yeah i won't <laughs> you know, obviously i won't make talk fear of them but you know yeah and falcons i mean falcons are cool so i'll give them props for that Camels yeah i mean cool if too. you're gonna if you're gonna spend your money on falcons it's like hard you know that's just a good investment unlike some of the other things now to get closer to wrapping up here i wanted to ask you uh in your opinion what sort of spiritual protection does islam in general offer to believers to muslims um i mean islam like offers like I mean, I think Islam really offers, like, total spiritual protection and also, like, a concept of, like, what you're dealing with, like, spiritually. It's more than, like, spiritual protection against, like, you know, uh, sinister mm -hmm. powers or things like that. Like, Islam, like, is, uh, you know, a much more, like, mundane support to life, like, of being in touch with, like, your creator. And, you know, like, uh, in terms of, like, you know, the support to, to Muslims, you know, yeah, I mean... Uh, I guess being Muslim is the support that Islam offers to like a person, you know, because they a Muslim is someone who does Islam, who like does submit to Allah. So the yeah, like uh, it's uh, definitely like a valuable thing in terms of like one's self concept, being able to check in with like your creator, which uh, nourishes your relationship with yourself. Uh, and of course, like you know, like every time we pray, you know, we say like uh, five times a day, like you know, regime. so like we, you know, and we're mindful, you know, that's uh, the most powerful phrase that Allah has given us to protect ourselves, I think, you know, from, from shaitan. But of course, you know, there, we, we've got all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, protective maneuvers, like we, Ayat al-Kursi, yeah. even Surah al-Falak, which is, Surah al-Falak is basically just, uh, you know, an anti-black magic, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, formula uh yeah what what is what is that um it's a it's surah falak is a short surah of the quran it's one of the the last ones in terms of the order you usually see meaning it's one of the shortest uh it's just mm -hmm. like uh i take refuge with the lord of daybreak uh i i'm, I'm not uh hafiz of this particular verse in arabic but it's like i take refuge with the lord of daybreak uh from the evil of what he's created uh from the night when it spreads its darkness from the uh it's like the nethef uh yeah nethefat the blowers on knots which is like a ref uh, reference to sort of witchcraft that's another thing that i probably mm. should have mentioned like you know all cultures like you know the further you go back into the past like the more normal it is to be misogynistic so if you want to know like where <laughs> you know if you want to know where like a lot of the time the line is drawn like in terms of good versus bad magic like people mm. like the the bad the you know women are more liable to be doing the bad type of magic, you know, but I, I'm not saying that's exclusive to Islam at all. Like we know that that's true of everybody, but anyway, uh, yeah. yeah so the Nefehet, uh, 
or sorry, the Nethafat, uh, who are the blowers on knots, uh, that, like, you know, that's a feminine word, so it's kind of implied that it is women doing these kind of knot-tying spells, which I think, you know, is a type of magic that is uh, still practiced and definitely was practiced at the time. Uh, and then, yeah, so it's uh, from, yeah, the, uh, the ones who blow on knots. And then what is uh, next? Uh, it's, uh, yeah, we the night when expresses darkness from the ones who blow on knots. Um, I think that, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, uh, then I'm trying to see if I'm getting confused with Al Nas, but, uh, yeah. Um, I'm looking at the last part, see if I miss anything. Oh, yeah, the evil of the envy or when they envy. Uh, yeah. Minshar Hasad, Hide Hasad. So, yeah, the and like, you know, that's kind of like the evil eye, Ainal Hasad, or the, uh, you know, another classic sort of thing to be afraid of uh, in this in this cosmology. So, if we're thinking, like, spiritual techniques that Islam has, there's, you know, there's praying five times a day, there's that specific surah you cited. What, are there any other, like, types of protections against, like, negative influences or, you know, evil entities or is there anything else that comes to mind well there is a lot of surahs in addition to that that one comes to mind when in terms mm -hmm. of like magic per se because it has that sort of reference to uh witchcraft but you know even the subsequent one uh surah al nas uh mankind as it's sometimes known or, or uh, the men um or the humans uh that's also kind of prophylactic in terms of its meaning so a lot of the shorter surahs are um you know, have to do with that. And Ayat al-Kursi is, is, you know, very widely held to have uh, the sort of throne verse that's very widely held to have a prophylactic uh, power. Um, mm. And in terms of, I mean, all of our practices do, you know, fasting, uh, like, uh, yeah, I mean, those types of things, uh, definitely. I mean, there is, like, of course, Rukia, like, there is definitely, like, when it gets to a certain point, there is there are techniques of like exorcism that are performed by like you know uh skilled people recently there was like this whole like controversy like around like these sort of fake uh, this like sort of fake rukia group that was like famous on like instagram like they were like muslim instagram influencers and they were doing like fake oh, no. exorcisms and yeah like you know they were so popular for being like so pious you know like uh and yeah the guy had like two wives but like uh yeah one of the wives was like you know uh maybe she hadn't known the other one hadn't known about her at first or something or like she was you know uh pretending to be ex the one exercised but she was actually like yeah it was something like that you know but it was this whole thing but yeah i mean one book that i've recommended a lot on someone which i had which i think touches on a lot of the topics we've dealt with today and it's like an ethnography that mostly deals with like, you know, a modern landscape in Morocco is Not of the Soul by Stefania Pandolfo. And that deals with Rukia and like exorcism of jinn and also talks mm. about the phenomena of jinn possession, like through kind of like a psychoanalytic lens and talks about kind of the epistemological conflict and gulf between the sort of uh, Islamic uh, cosmology uh, dealing with, you know, where uh, gym possession is treated as something that is real phenomena and the sort of psychoanalytic cosmology where this is seen as like a manifestation of madness. Uh, so yeah, it's a kind of dealing with this kind of epistemological break. And it's a very interesting book and even talks about some, uh, you know, more classical Islamic philosophy in there as well. Um, but yeah, uh, so yeah, there's there's many things. I mean, 
like, you know, I, I feel like there's always like a little bit of a risk. And I think, you know, it's like, trust God, but tie your camel, you know, like a lot will watch out <laughs> for you. But like, that doesn't mean that you should like throw yourself headlong into like doing some kind of like sus, like Satan summoning thing. Like that's obviously yeah. like, no, don't think that you're protected just because you, you know, said, like, you know, then you can just turn around and like, you know, sell your soul or something. Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, that sounds yeah. wonderful. And like that book exploring those tensions between like the two frameworks, that sounds like it could be really fruitful. Yeah, it's super interesting. I definitely, that's one of the few like ethnographies of Islam that I actually like have liked, uh, you know, so, and I actually like that book, like, you know, in general among all books, like generally like, I'm like put off by ethnographies, but mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the other one, Muslims through discourse, is one that I mentioned in our um, in our Bigfoot episode because that mentions like you know, and that does uh, talk, <laughs> contain discussion of like, and that also has to deal with attention not between like you know, uh, sort of an Islamic epistemology and psychoanalysis, but between like modernism and uh, uh, sort of traditionalism like a more folk inflected traditionalism mm. in the the philippines versus like you know uh you know a more systematized uh modernized form of islam you know so uh yeah it's a uh, it's it's interesting um and it talks about lots of different things like uh, and something that you know i mentioned uh like the tarot cards and we talked about you know magic squares and we didn't really talk about geomancy which also has an element of chance but it goes into kind of how yeah. the connection between games of chance and randomness and uh, uh magic because that's kind of what is behind the magic square is the idea that there are like you know structure and order in things that are seemingly random which is like a, a principle that i think that anyone like in the general like conspiracy or like esoteric universe can appreciate um and like it's all about kind of like opening oneself to like some of that randomness so that the order behind it can come through in a way and that's what the Mm. principle kind of is is based on you know like when you see water crystallize into a snowflake you know it's like so amazing it's like wow like you know it contained that like like intense like symmetrical structure like you know when you sort of uh doing randomness like uh geomancy or like you know card based magic things like that that's what the principle behind it is uh and that you can kind of see in the magic square as well you know they all add up to the same number it's kind of like mathematical Mm -hmm. same thing as like you know it's a universal cosmic principle and it's about like kind of trying to find a way to exploit it but anyway yeah so uh yeah uh, no, that's... Yeah, everyone yeah and if you and there's actually a surprising amount of this stuff covered in the quran itself so i definitely recommend the quran to everybody as always yeah no for sure so let's pause it for a moment right like it would be cool if someone found islam through this episode but statistically they probably won't but just apart from that what would you say to people who probably aren't going to convert but like what value or spiritual protection do you see Islam as offering even to people who probably aren't, you know, converting? Like, do you, does that question make sense? 
that's an interesting question because well you know it does make sense in a way because like islam as originally articulated like now we very much think of islam like in you know we're again after the whole reformation and like the confessional age we now think of islam as like a confessional persuasion and that's been the case like for a long time probably even before that when we think of like islam as like a religion you know like a certain thing like mm-hmm. christianity is one of those things and islam is another one of those things but like in its original conception you know muhammad never said like here's my new religion islam (laughs) you know it seems as something that's like you know above that you know like this is like a recalling to the reality behind like all these religions of the book like you know the like you know we muslims like we believe that islam what it is is like worshiping the god like the creator god uh you know allah being Mm. like just one name for that reality being another the real haq you know, so uh, really like, you know, uh, there like a relationship with God, like is definitely something that's useful to everyone. Like the prophet Muhammad, like even though like unfortunately in America and the West, like, uh, you know, we don't say the same thing about Jesus, of course, contrary to perhaps some the belief of some like Muslims aren't anti-Jesus, like we revere Jesus. So actually Jesus mm-hmm. is uh, like a incredibly powerful spiritual personality and like you know a prophet of a law of god and he you know can uh offer like a lot of uh like you know he offers a lot to the individual as is the prophet muhammad and the son and the traditions that he uh you know passed to people and that he showed the people the way of praying that he uh showed so you know i don't know like what like what does it mean to like you know be uh muslim like you know to but on a basic level you know our creed is that like you know there's no god but god and muhammad is his prophet you know uh so i guess muhammad is maybe this the the uh the stumbling block like there for people like who otherwise believe in god like uh i hope this isn't too much of a rambling answer but like you know no, definitely a relationship with god can be helpful i you know uh in general and i think that uh, you know, it, there's definitely a principle of Islam that like, you know, or, you know, I think it's definitely a true fact that if, you know, if you reach out towards God, God will reach out towards you. And even if you mm. don't necessarily believe in God, like if you like open yourself a little bit, like you'll be surprised, like you really will, because I, I actually used to not believe in God. I used to be an atheist myself, um, mm. which, you know, maybe is something that people don't know. About me, but I was like very much like a vociferous atheist. I think certain people are. Um, you know, like, uh, go through that period of their lives. Like people do, uh, you know, a fair amount, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, but I think that you will be surprised if you like take like a step towards God, like how God will show himself and how like the relationship to God will unfold. It will, um, you know, in my view, if you're, you know, uh, if your mileage varies, then, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think that it will, uh, you know, but yeah. I, yeah, like, um, I'm just trying to, you know, uh, head here so people don't get mad and think that I'm like, you know, <laughs> uh, like trying to push my, uh, my religion, uh, down your throat. I mean, but you know, I, I think, yeah, our religion is about God. Um, and we follow Muhammad. So in terms of people who aren't Muslim, like what, you know, Islam can do, uh, to help. I mean, yeah, those are like 
to help you those are the things i mean you know i feel like it's yeah. a pretty basic thing you know you don't have to be like all in right away but uh you know um yeah i think that like well you know what we're talking about like you know if you're just trying to like that's kind of the thing where it's like oh i'm gonna use these techniques like but i don't like really believe in this i believe that they have some kind of like you know uh abstract utility i don't know how you would think that but like if you were like in some way like doing it like formulaically or trying to that's like i think the thing that would actually get you in trouble you know like that (laughs) you know so like the most important thing like uh you know widely held like in islamic thought the most you know thing that follows everything is niyat or intent you know before you pray the first step is niyat that's actually a debate that comes up in the book i mentioned muslims for discourse you know whether you say niyat verbally or you say it internally you know like where does the is the action located you know does it need to be in the heart or like with the tongue etc but you know this niyat or intention is always something that makes prayer mm-hmm. valid your prayer isn't valid without niyat so your niya has to be towards worshiping Allah. You know, if it's for something else, you know, God sees everything, like the unseen, like the things that you conceal and the things you reveal, you know, as it says in the Quran. So, uh, you know, anyway, yeah, that's my answer. Uh, no, I mean, I think that's, <laughs> no, I think that was great. I think it was a well put and beautiful answer. And I will just say on my part, like I sort of, <laughs> Uh, didn't mean to put you in a position of having to evangelize for Islam. Like you don't necessarily do that on your show, but I mean, no, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not like super interested in, uh, do, and that's why, like you know, like uh, I mean, yeah. even like you know, I'll talk about like some of these things like that. You know, I won't be like, oh, you know, Islam. Every Islamic civilization has been like the best. I mean, a lot of the time, like, I think that. <laughs> I'm, like, perceived as doing that because, like, the lies and slanders about, like, Muslims and Islam are so intense that, like, it seems like, you know, I'm, like, uh, you know, I'm boosting. But really, I'm just trying to, like, compensate for, like, some of that. But, like, I, you know, like, Muslims yeah. definitely aren't perfect. Like, you know, there's many, you know. Uh, and, yeah, so, like, you know, I'm I'm definitely not, like, an evangelist, like, you know. or no, well, I'm not, like, super I mean... into, like, just doing Islamic apologetics or anything like that. But... You know, obviously I'm passionate about it, uh, but, no, you know. No, I, uh, yeah. I agree because, like, I don't think that the best way to convert people would be to start a niche, like, conspiracy theory podcast in the first no, place. No, it wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> so no. clearly that's not, like, your main aim, but, like, I still admire yeah, that it, I you mean, know, comes people, through. Some people have, like, the, I feel like if I were, like, you know, if I had that uh, sort of uh, gift, then, like, Dimitri would be Muslim by now. But I feel like since, like, that (laughs) hasn't happened, like, I just don't have that gift for, like, converting people. Like, you know, some people do. And, like, you know, alhamdulillah for them, you know, like, uh, like, but, you know, uh, I, 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 for whatever reason, don't seem to be someone who's, like, you know, attracting tons of converts. But inshallah, you know, inshallah, you know, some people among the Subhanal Jihad acolytes will, you know, <laughs> see the light of Islam. But, you know. Uh, yeah. Now, let me let me ask you one more question. So, I know you're a huge Taylor Swift fan. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. So, have you perceived any of her songs to have any um, either like magical properties or like any songs that seem to be related to Islam in any way? I think that there, I do see an esoteric meaning in some of Taylor's songs. Um, you know, for instance, like 
there's one song that comes immediately to mind. Oh yeah, no, I am thinking of the wrong one. Hold on. Uh, what I'm like, you know, but I guess it's not uh, embarrassing to not be like the most like you know encyclopedic knowledge of Taylor Swift. <laughs> uh, I'll just look up the lyrics because I know what they are. But uh, oh yeah, Holy Ground from Red. Of course, I should have known it wasn't a song from Reputation. Of course, it's from Red. What you know, one of her better albums. <laughs> uh, yeah, Holy Ground, which is you know a much beloved Taylor song. Uh, you know, of course, Holy Ground is the title, right? And it, you know, it seems about. Um, you know, like, it seems like it's about, you know, a guy, which is, you know, if you look at a lot of, like, Sufi poetry, you know, like the famous uh, Maulana Rumi, who has, like, you know, we did a whole episode of Spum Jihad on the on the Patreon about uh, Rumi and about Manakabal Arafin, which is a, a hagiography of the Levy order. But if you listen to the episode, you'll see that, like, the hippy dippy reputation of Rumi is, like, you know, not quite accurate. You know, he was, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, of, uh, you know, of a complex and, like, you know, in some cases, like, uh, terrible in the literal sense, you know, like, uh, figure, you know, inspiring, like, kind of awe, uh, you know, a very, a very potent person and, uh, someone who, you know, could definitely be scary, uh, in certain contexts, you know, if you, if you, uh, you know, roused his, his ire or had the unpredictability of, you know, the, the, a god that he was in touch with, you know, or the sort of awesome power. But anyway, so a lot of his poetry about god, uh, or about like you know his spiritual uh relationships they have kind of the form of love poetry and he would sometimes and it's even a tradition like in islam of uh or you know in 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 muslim or arabic and persian poetry of kind of taking uh the verses of popular love songs and kind of reinterpreting them to be about uh Mm. allah and i think like i've always felt that holy ground kind of uh is is like that where uh they're, they're the bridge it says uh Tonight I'm going to dance for all that we've been through, but I don't want to dance if I'm not dancing with you. Uh, tonight I'm going to dance like you were in this room, but I don't want to dance if I'm not dancing with you. Now, to mm-hmm. me, like that really reflects kind of the same tension between uh, presence and absence that you see like in a lot of uh, Sufi uh, poetry. Like, uh, you know, there's one line from the Mahnavi, uh of of Rumi where he says something like, you know, you who seek wonders, like, here's one, you know, the beloved is neither with nor without uh, the lover, you know, or the lover is neither with nor without the beloved. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a side al-Din Kashgari says something like, someone could fly, and this is, like, kind of a trope in Sufism, speaking of, like, you know, magic and, and spiritual powers and things like that, you know, it says, like, someone, even if someone could fly through the air or had flown for a hundred years, they would never truly comprehend like the meaning of this one verse you know uh what it means like to be both with and without and he says Mm. but you know for the people who really have present awareness you know who are really you know they never doubt the existence of god uh any more than they can doubt the existence of their own selves you know even if they dress in strange clothes they would still know that they themselves were there so this whole like so this this uh bridge of a Taylor song (laughs) where you know she says that she's gonna dance but she doesn't want to dance without the you, you know, without the object of the, of the song. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's a sort of presence and absence. Like, okay, well, if you don't want to dance without this person, then why are you dancing? So they're both there and not. And I see, you know, a deep esoteric meaning 
uh you know in this in this song which is i think you know one of her one of her best holy ground on on red yeah but you know uh i'll, I'll leave it there but uh you heard it here first on program to chill taylor swift is a crypto sufi yeah mm-hmm, i think so i think the reason why she's well i guess now she is political but uh originally my take on why she you know wouldn't say anything politically was that she didn't believe that it was halal to vote for a non-muslim ruler period <laughs> so that's why she would never she would never weigh in on politics but now now she does but i guess that's just because she knows about joe biden's uh sharia agenda um (laughs) all right so this was Khalid from subliminal jihad which if you're not listening to subliminal jihad i mean what are you doing with your life yeah (laughs) uh, (laughs) something that takes three hours uh no but um yeah uh Dimitri usually does this part, uh, you know, and I'm usually not here without him. But, you know, we can look at him at Twitter. Uh, we're at Subliminal Jihad. Uh, we're on SoundCloud. We're on Spotify, Subliminal Jihad. Uh, and you go to Patreon.com, Subliminal Jihad, if you want to listen to the Rumi episode uh, or, you know, various other things. You want to be in the grotto where you can have to Jimmy uh, and the rest of <laughs> our great acolytes. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm sure you'll you'll be able to find us. Uh, yeah. All right. I was reminiscing just the other day while well, I've been coffee all alone and Lord, it took me away. Back to a first glance, feeling on New York time. Back when you fit in my poems like a perfect rhyme. Took off faster than a green light go. Yeah, you skip the conversation when you already know. I left a note on the door with a joke we made. And that was the Yeah.